0: We started doing some, what I call cross-pollinization. So the Vietnamese would come to the English mass and sing in Vietnamese. And and then the African choir would go to the Vietnamese. <laughs> it was it was awesome. And then we'd all come together, you know, Christmas and Easter, you know, those kinds of things. And But now we try to, to deliberately create opportunities outside of that to bring people together. And it really, in our little, even our small community, it's made a huge difference. How do we bring different cultures together, in the world and in the church? Is
1: there a way to move beyond dividing people by ethnic groups to actually build a diverse community under the same roof? In today's episode, globally renowned evangelist, Catholic media personality and author, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, shows us that an
0: authentic, diverse community experience is both necessary and possible to achieve in the church and in the world. If you don't have much diversity in your church, invite the African American or Black Catholic parish down the street or the Hispanic parish down this Native American parish, and and invite them to come to your parish, have a potluck. And then you have camaraderie. people sitting around talking, and then you have the people of color get up there and share their story. Here's what it's been like since I left my country and came here. Here's the struggles I've had living my catholic faith in this american culture so that people can hear now it becomes real now it becomes personal now you become more engaged because now you care because now you see real people sharing their real life stories of, of their encounter and their struggles and their challenges I, i'm not just interested in your story i'm interested in you now you see you make that connection and that's how we start to to, to bring communities together
1: There is much that God is telling us through the differences he has built into our world. By fostering a proper understanding of the spiritual treasure of diversity, we can become living witnesses to the power of community and bring
0: healing to a divided world. This is Living the Call.
1: Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, God bless you, brother. Welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. It's great to be here, Deacon Charlie.
1: It's awesome to have you, man. I, you, you're a, you're a hero of mine, um, and for a lot of different reasons. And we'll get to some of those in a minute. But the thing I was most excited about with this show is like, well, we got Benedictine spirituality, we got scripture, we got you know male spirituality, we got the spirituality deacon we can talk about. We got media ministry. We can we can do so many different things. I'm like, I don't even know where to where to begin having the conversation. Maybe maybe you do. Um, but there's just so much. There's such a richness in. Um, in your ministry and the things that you touch on that I didn't think that we'd be any worse for wear in terms of subjects for discussion.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I cover a lot of ground, you know, I think, um, my approach is, uh, to be a generalist, you know, okay. I, I, w- when I uh, made the transition from my law enforcement career to speaking full time, I didn't want to be pigeonholed, you know, like, uh, yeah. Oh, you know, he's the men's guy or he's, you know, this guy, you know, I, I, I wanted to, um, you know, share as much of the depth of the faith as I could. And so I'm just kind of geeky that way. Although, obviously, I mean, I, I did write a book for men, and I sure. wrote a book about uh, Father Augustus Tolton. I wrote a book on the service ministry of the deacon. I'm writing a book now on the Catholic response to racism. So, again, I think that shows the the broadness of, of my approach um, so that I could reach as many people as, as possible.
1: One of, the, one of the things that we talked about, when, when you and I first met, I don't know if you remember this, but Chris Check, um, at Catholic Answers introduced us, and, you know, one of the things I was curious about, and kind of this goes to the pigeonhole concept, I think, that you just brought up, one of the things I was curious about, specifically at that time, was the state of Black Catholicism in the United States. Like, that was something I was studying, I was interested in, so I thought I'd speak to, you know, people who are expert in that and have that, that perspective. But in that conversation, it be, a, a couple of things became clear— and, and, and I feel this myself as as a Latino and in ministry, that oftentimes, you know, that can be a, um, you know, pigeonhole, a opportunity, perhaps something that you're not envisioning that leads you to feel or have people believe of you that that's kind of the subject matter or area that you want to speak about. And at the same time, it is important. And there is a specific experience that we can share with others. So like, That whole idea is is a balancing act for me. I can only imagine for you, especially post, you know, uh, George Floyd. Like, talk about that a little bit. I mean, how do you strike that balance? Because there's a lot of really worthwhile things the world should know about what it means to be black and Catholic and the state of black Catholicism in the country. But at the same time, like, you know, you're a man of God, husband, father, deacon, and all those things have nothing to do with what color you are.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, when we die and stand before our Lord Jesus Christ— uh, in the judgment seat, he's not going to say he's not going to ask me how black I was. I mean, he's going to ask me, you know, did I did I do what he asked to do? Did I did I live the call that he gave me? Did, did I use my talents that he gave me to the best of my ability? Did, or did I just give him back what he gave me? You know, did I multiply those talents? You know, tenfold, fiftyfold, uh, a hundredfold. Yeah. Uh, but at having said that, um, there is a gift that people of color bring to the church and people of different culture. For example, in my parish at Immaculate Heart of Mary in Portland, we're a very richly culturally diverse parish. Half the parish is Vietnamese. We have people from probably eight or 10 different countries on the continent of Africa. We have uh, Europeans. We have myself from Barbados, a few Caribbean folks there. And um, it's also, it's a very... Um, rich church. And we all bring our specific gifts to the church. So for example, the Vietnamese have um, beautiful music and traditions that they bring into the parish uh, the Africans bring their music and bring their passion oh, yeah. for worshiping the Lord, you know, uh, as, as part of, uh, as part of our parish life, you know, so, so all of those things are actually supposed to be designed to bring people together. Yes, they're rich and yes, they're different, yes, they're different, but we worship one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Jesus Christ that we all worship together. But we can bring these these beautiful, unique expressions of our faith into a parish, I think, which makes the parish life more engaging, more interesting, um, and uh, allows people to see that, you know. the pictures of Jesus as his white European is not is not you know uh necessarily um uh, how we live that out in, in Paris life we can all bring our gifts uh to to our faith
1: the the world tends to take things that are gospel principles and sometimes denies them other times deforms them other times both have you found something similar in at this moment of a lot more emphasis on diversity?
0: Yeah, I think so. I, I think, you know, I'll give you an example. I had a guy call me the other day that was interested in having me come to his parish, and he described his parish as country club white. <laughs> That's mm. his exact words. Um, and, but but they they live amongst a diverse community, and they were wondering why they aren't getting more people of color coming to the parish, so I said, "Well, tell me what kinds of things that you're doing," and and became clear to me that these, that the diversity of the parish is not something that they think about every mm. day. A lot of people come to the parish, they um, access the sacraments, they go to mass, receive our Lord in Word and Sacrament, and and they don't think about what's happening in a Black Catholic community or Hispanic community or Native American community or or the Caribbean community. They, they don't think about it, and so. When they see people of—and and, and that's the one piece. And the other piece, of course, we get too comfortable. You know, I'm a 10 o'clock master. I have my seat every week. Oh, and yeah. You know, we've got to get into this this routine, this rhythm. Routine. And we don't appreciate when a new person walks in, a person of color. Maybe a family just immigrated to the United States, trying to find a place to go to church. They show up at your parish, and we don't say anything to them, you know, you know or or we don't pay attention to them. Or because we always assume someone else is going to do that. Well, we have a hospitality committee, you know. Maybe someone from there will greet them. Well, no, you know. I mean, we have to get out of this, um, this um, where we, we're putting up walls uh, instead of uh, opening ourselves to receive the gifts that, uh, including the, the people uh, that that God are bringing to us in our in our parish communities.
1: And that happens. I mean, that idea of you know, not sort of taking an interest in these different populations is is kind of an extension of a broader issue around, I would think, engagement, right, just in general accompaniment. I had Sister Josephine Garrett on my show, uh, you know, a few weeks back, and I asked her specifically what her thoughts were with respect to just the numbers, right? So if you look at, I forget what the number exactly is, you may know, but um, relative to the population, about 13%, of the country is African American uh, or black because it could be Caribbean, maybe not necessarily from American roots, but but 13% is black, and yet the number of Black Catholics is significantly lower as a percentage, whereas the inverse is true with you know um, Latinos as an example, right? Kind of an over to the to the to the uh, to to the numbers, and her thought was very similar to yours. It was. And even beyond the parish, it was it was a lack of engagement in the parish, but even beyond the parish, right? Because you're right, somebody can walk into the parish, and the degree to which I engage them, probably not ideal, but how much less engagement are people going out to, you know, into other places and communities to kind of like bring the message into those places, you know? So I I think it could also be perhaps twofold.
0: Well, no, that's an important point, because yeah. let's face the facts: we're not very good evangelizers. I mean, the whole purpose of uh, after Mass, the deacon kicks you out, right? E.T. Misa S. Go, she is sent. The church is sent. Sent to do what? <laughs> you know, to witness to the power of the Eucharistic Lord in the in the, in the the world. We're fed by uh, our Lord Jesus Christ in word and sacrament. Mm. The word comes first because God first revealed himself in the word, right, in the Old Testament. And then, of course, John tells us in the prologue of his gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt in. Among us, among us. But first he was the Word. So he reveals himself to the Word. The Word prepares our minds, our hearts, and our souls to then receive him again, mm. body, blood, soul, divinity, and the Eucharist. And it's that combination of word and sacrament that it impels us and empowers us to go forward after Mass to be Eucharist to the world. Mm. And we are horrible at that. As ca- I mean, think about just Not just, not just the this? diversity, but think about your, your workplace. How many people go in and they put this rainbow... Uh, flag on your desk and say, okay, well, this is gay pride month. You have to, you have to put this on your desk for the month. How many Catholics going to stand up and say, well, actually, no, I, you know, I, I you know, I, I believe we love everyone. I don't, I don't want to, you know, uh, pigeonhole myself to this particular group. yeah. You know, how many people are going to stand up for their faith and say, no, you know, I mean, I, I, on a plane, right? When, when I travel, I wear a crucifix because, yeah. you know, typically, you know, this Deacon Charlie, we, we typically don't wear clerics. Um, as as permanent deacons. And I travel in regular clothes, but I wear a crucifix everywhere. And so I was on a plane and, and a lady uh, looked at me and, and she goes, that offends me, talking about really? the crucifix. I said, oh, then don't look. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I mean, so, so we, we can't be embarrassed or ashamed of our face. Yeah. So when we're, we're not evangel, And when we don't evangelize, it's not just a detriment um, to the, to those uh, communities uh, of color that we could be engaging with. We're also not living the gospel. I mean, you know, gospel evangelization, evangelium means good news. But actually, if you look a little deeper in the etymology, you'll see that for the Greeks, uh, I mean, for the Romans, it, it, yes, it meant good news, Evangelium or Evangelion in Greek. But except when the king proclaimed news, because when the king proclaimed news, it just wasn't good news because news from the king Could change your life. Mm. It wasn't just good news; it was life changing news, Mm. and that's the life changing encounter with Jesus Christ that Mm -hmm. we are supposed to witness to people, and we don't do a good job at that.
1: Now, do do you think? uh, So, let's talk about that for a second. Number one, we don't do a good job of that. I agree with you. I think that the evidence is pretty clear. Like you just look at data, you kind of see how we're doing as a church. You know, I just got back from the Napa Institute uh, conference, which I'd never been to. Um, you know, I talk about some uh, some uh, khaki and blue blazer crowd. That's the one. But nevertheless, a lot of great people, amazing uh, workshops and all that. But the part that struck me was, is this getting better or worse? And if so, why? Why is it that we're not this, you know, people of evangelization that get shot out of a cannon with the misa Est and like go into our workplaces and, You know, change our email signatures. What is that? Is that distinctly an American thing? You've been all over the world. I mean, what is that? And is it getting better or is it getting worse?
0: Well, I think uh, it's definitely an American thing. Uh, I don't see the same thing in Africa or Asia, which are the two countries that I traveled to, well, before COVID, (laughs) that I traveled to uh, the the most. And, um, you know, I think some of it is just a little bit of just spiritual lethargy on our part. Um, we're very comfortable here. If you yeah. go to Asia and you go to to uh, Africa, what what you see is that there's there's some persecution going on in the church. And here's what I noticed: that when the church in the countries that I go to, where the church is under some persecution, that's where the church is most alive. Mm. You see, but mm. but the thing is, we are we're getting more and more under persecution in this. In the United States as well, you think about the so-called redefinition of marriage, this whole transgenderism movement, you know, the push now the, to uh, repeal the Hyde Amendment and abortion at, at all stages for whatever reason, um, attacks on religious freedom, the uh, deplatforming, cancel culture. <laughs> so we're, we're definitely under assault here. Yeah. But I don't think as of yet the church is feeling the pressure of that. You know, the pressure enough to be able to, to act. You yeah. know, I mean, if you look at the early church, these great men and women of faith died rather than deny Jesus. They died rather than deny their faith in in, in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and God is not asking us to physically die. Like he's asking our brothers and sisters in Africa, you know, uh, uh, under Boko Haram, we're being beheaded. And he's not asking that of us here. But we do have to find the courage to stand up for our faith and not allow this culture to run roughshod over us. And I believe that when it comes to this issue of race, this is the one area that we can take the lead in. Because we're, we're, one of the things that frustrates me about the church in the United States, we're always reactive. You yeah. know, when this whole thing about the redefinite of marriage was, was coming or euthanasia, we should have been in the forefront of that conversation. We're we should have been engaging people. Into, but instead, yeah. it passes, then we put a statement out. Mm. What is that? I mean, yeah. that's reactive. But I think when it comes to race, we could be in the forefront. Now, this is an opportunity. Why? Because it's a vacuum when it comes to race relations in this country. Think about it. Back in the 50s and 60s, we had Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. In South Africa, they had Nelson Mandela. So these were men that that people could rally around that transcended political ideology, that transcended racial issues, that transcended differences and said, hey, these guys make sense. Here's someone that gets it. Here's someone we can rally around. Mm -hmm. We don't have anybody like that today. So in in the midst of this leadership vacuum, we have organizations that have agendas, and the agenda is certainly not bringing people together um, they're, they're trying to push your agenda and the, the actual work of healing injustice is not getting done. So now we're even seeing even more polarization in some areas now in our country.
1: That's the, the irony of this whole situation is you're right, that we should be not leading from the rear, but taking a you know, kind of the, the pole position on these issues for a thousand different reasons, not the least of which, Deacon, is that we are the universal faith. You want to see diversity, just take a, you know, cast a net over a hundred Catholics and you'll see diversity in the pews, in this country, in every country, rich, poor, dark, light, you know, uh, able, disabled, uh, you know, every range of humanity. We, we are the best example that I know of of showing that rich, true diversity, the beauty of different cultures and languages and perspectives and backgrounds. So like, why wouldn't we be taking that position?
0: No, exactly right. And I think one of the things that we can do is do a better job telling our stories. Think about it. I mean, I've been on EWTN basically every year since 2005. I have nine television series. But the most popular series on there is The Journey Home. Yeah. Think about it, because people are coming to Marcus Grodi, and they're telling their stories of how Christ came into their life and completely changed their life. And we don't do a good job doing it. You know how many times I go to a parish and I talk about adoration, and I talk about how adoration has changed my life. People say, well, Deacon, how did you leave law enforcement to be traveling around the world, writing books and doing television and radio and podcasts and talking about Jesus? I said, I had no plan for that. (laughs) I mean, the the Lord made it very clear where in adoration, in that Mm. silence, we entered into that silence. What I call like this, I like to call the silence of Joseph, right? We enter into that silence of, of Joseph, who has no recorded words in scripture, but his actions spoke louder than his words. So we entered that adoration, that place of silence, so we can listen to the voice of God and allow that voice to change our life. You know, oh. and, and so we don't do a good enough job then telling the stories of how God changed our life. So so I'll, I'll ask people to talk. How many of you had a powerful experience of adoration that changed everything? All these hands will go up. Wonderful. How many of you told anybody about it? No hands go up. See, we, we wow. keep the faith to ourselves. We have to stop that and start sharing. Here, here's one thing that I would recommend. I'm gonna and I'm putting this in my book for what, what parishes can do. One thing is, for example, if if you as this as I mentioned before, this guy described this parish as country club white, right? If you don't have much diversity in your church, invite the you know the African American the Black Catholic parish down the street, or the Hispanic parish down the street, or the Native American parish, and and invite them to come to your parish. Have a potluck, man. Yep. People love food. Because people bring their food from their different cultures and, you know, well, of course, you have to do this after COVID and all that, right? But you, you share food and then you have camaraderie people sitting around talking. And then you have the people of color get up there and share their story. Here's what it's been like since I left my country and came here. Here's the struggles I've had living my Catholic faith in this American culture. Here's the struggles and the challenges that I've had trying to live my faith in this community. So the people can hear their stories like, hey, these are real people. Hey, wait a minute. They're going through the same struggles with their kid as I'm going through with my kid. Now it becomes real. Now it becomes personal. Now you become more engaged because Mm. now you care. Now you care because now you see real people sharing their real life stories of, of their encounter and their struggles and their challenges. And to enter into that story and say, you know what? I am really, I'm not just interested in your story. I'm interested in you now. You see, you make that connection. And that's how we start to to, to bring communities together.
1: And it, people don't have to travel that far either, right? I I, I gave a, a talk not too long ago, and one of the, the thematics that I, that I put in that, to your point, Deacon, was about changing your watering holes, right? Kind of like trying a different place, um, you know, where you go, whatever. It could be where you look for new people to join your apostolate, where you look for new employees, where you look for new partnerships, change your watering hole and you'll find different people there. But in the context of that discussion, I mentioned one that's really easy. You know, I, I asked this person, well, how many masses do they have in your parish? And, and this woman was saying, well, we have like five on a Sunday and we've got one at nine and one at 1030, whatever. And I said, well, well, are all of the, like, which ones do you go to? And there was like, I go to the 10th, you know, to your point earlier. And the other ones were in Spanish. I said, well, Right there in your own parish is a community of people who are literally sitting in the same pew as you that you may interact with just in the parking lot coming to and back from your mass, right? So oftentimes it's not even about going across town or across country or whatever, but like just literally in your own parish community, the, 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 the folks who might be there.
0: No, exactly right. And we had that same challenge or our little parish at Immaculate Heart. We probably got, what, 210 families, um, and we had this rich community. And when I first got there, when I first moved to Oregon and became a member of the parish, and I, and I still happen to serve as deacon there um, now, but when I first joined the parish, um, I saw this rich diversity, but then I saw silos. I went, wait a yeah, minute. For sure. The Vietnamese doing their own thing, Africans yep. doing their own thing, Europeans doing their own thing. What's going on here? So I, I brought it to the pastor's attention, and that's when we started. You know, um, we we that's we started with the potlucks. That's where I got the idea from. We started doing that, and you started seeing people come together in ways that was beautiful. And now, yeah. in fact, we started doing some what I call cross pollinization So the Vietnamese would come to the English mass and sing in yeah. Vietnamese, and and then the African choir would go to the Vietnamese. <laughs> it was it was awesome. And then we'd all come together, you know, Christmas and Easter, you know, th- those sure. kinds of things. And but now we try to. Deliberately create opportunities outside of that to bring people together. And it really, in our little, even our small community, it's made a huge difference.
1: Yeah, that idea of bringing people just for the, you know, for the music, for the hymns, for those kind of things are ways in which you can incorporate some of this, you know, some of these cultural aspects and kind of, you know, drive, use it as a bit of a forcing mechanism, maybe the wrong word, but to drive that kind of interaction, which ultimately leads to the story, which I do want to touch on in a second, you know, for sure. Just one side note before we we get back to story, though, I had an opportunity to spend a little bit of time with Archbishop Cordiglione uh, from San Francisco And I thanked him for, you know, what in all other respects is kind of a liturgical innovation, which is normally not something that people are like, you know, doing rounds of applauses about. But he introduced, he had a new mass written uh, by a a composer, I forget his name right now, but you may know, called the Mass of the Americas. And he commissioned this mass, uh, I think, for the Diocese of San Francisco, but now they've kind of gone on a roadshow and performed it in other parts of the country. And the sole purpose of the Mass of the Americas not the sole purpose. There's two main purposes, but one of them is to bring the Anglo and Latino communities together, because there's such this kind of like two parishes in one building dynamic that happens, and they did it to use your example a lot of it through music, through kind of bringing music together, bringing both of these communities together. And I was thinking about that. It's like, man, everybody is out there trying to come up with all these different solutions to drive this, and the reality of it is, it's not one thing. It's like thousands of, of small things, I think. It's very much a subsidiarity kind of approach to get some of these things to work. And so, I, you know, I love that example, but it, you just reminded me of it with the whole thing about the Vietnamese music.
0: Yeah, and, you know, I don't understand a word they're saying, but it's beautiful. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm yeah. I mean, I, I'm sitting up there at the altar next to Father. When they're sure. singing, I, I'm telling you, I'm elevated, man. I'm mm. elevated. And, and it's just like, I don't understand, but, but it doesn't matter because the... The, the beauty is there. Just like Gregorian chant. You know, I get that same kind of lift, that same kind of elevation. When the African choir is singing, you know, That's my beautiful. mom, God rest her soul, she died in 2009. But when she was attending the parish, she lived with us the last three years of her life in Oregon. And she would, you just to see the tears coming down her face when the African mm. choir sang, you know, mm. and it's just—it was just—it's magnificent and it's beautiful, and and it's it's those and remember, no, I'm, we're talking. I'm not talking about liturgical innovation here because some people get all upset because they say, "Well, sure. we don't want dancing at mass and stuff like that." We're not talking about that, okay? Uh, and, right. you know, and very interesting. So we're talking about music. It's very very interesting to me because I've run into this as well. You know, you have the Latino music, right? Uh, you know, they have their expression of music and. Everybody recognizes that as Catholic. The Vietnamese music, everybody recognizes Catholic. But if, and sometimes in a Black Catholic parish, you know, they start singing. They say, "Well, that's Protestant." Yeah. Whoa, 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 hold on! Oh, that's super interesting. Mean? Well, hold on, yeah. hold on. So the Latino Hispanic community have their music. That's okay. The Vietnamese and the Asians have their music. That's okay. But the Blacks, yeah. it's Protestant. Hold on. I and mean, again, they might not be familiar of with the "Lead Me, Guide Me" hymnal you know yeah. which is now in its second edition uh that has black uh, uh expressions of music that are that are that are catholic and that um uh can definitely be as, uh, sung and as a as form of worship in the holy sacrifice of the mass without um uh, without the loss of any dignity or solemnity in the sacrifice of course not and they're beautiful yeah. all those, oh, all those yes. musical
1: expressions are amazing um, you know, and, and in many cases, the Latino versions of them oftentimes are very folkloric. They're very much about, you know, there's a cultural context behind them. Same thing, obviously, with with the black, um, you know, music and hymnals and all that. There's a, there's a story beyond the, you know, the story being being sung, right? And you get to that by hearing it, by feeling it, by being sort of steeped in it. It really is beautiful. We have um, the Religious Education uh, Conference here in Los Angeles, as you, as you probably know, Deacon, maybe you've been here a few times. but And look, there's you know it gets bad press and great press, and it depends on kind of what you read. Um, but I've always found it very edifying to go there, and one of the biggest reasons is because they have, on the second floor of the convention center in Anaheim, this huge display. It's like the entire floor for one or two days is taken over by exhibits that essentially illustrate and document the liturgical expressions throughout the world of all these different communities. And I'm talking about like, yes, of course, Vietnamese, Latino, all that stuff, but I'm talking about like, you know, how they do mass in Bali, and the Zaire Rite in Africa, and like all of these things. And it's like, this is a treasure trove. This is a treasure trove. This is how God allows us all to recognize our own dignity, humanity, et cetera, draw closer to one another, but also appreciate the great richness that he's allowed for the world, right? And it's it's so beautiful. Of course, things can be, like we said earlier, deformed and we can get a wrong understanding of what this means, or that somehow this is greater than something else, like our human dignity. But in the absence of that, It's something I think we need to learn a lot more. And back to your point, man, could we take that leadership position and do?
0: Oh, no, absolutely. And um, I think we need to do a better job exposing uh, the treasures, you know, because that's what it is. It's really a treasure. And I didn't really begin to appreciate it until I started traveling. You know, I remember when I was um, deaconing at Mass in in Soweto in South Africa. Mm. And Mass was, first of all, two and a half hours. It felt like five minutes. Uh, you know, um, but uh, did, did you preach? Is
1: that why it was two and a half hours? Well, I did.
0: I, I, I did <laughs> preach in English, although the, they used uh, Zulu, Sotho, English, and Latin. And I oh, said, wow, "Oh, wow, okay. that was so interesting. You use Latin." He goes, "Well, Latin is what ties all of us together." as a universal church. I was like, wow, beautiful. But I remember up there when they were bringing up the gifts and the women, they were bringing chickens and they were bringing fruit and they were bringing, you know, not just money, but they were bringing from their harvest, from their, you know, from their gardens and stuff, you know, uh, and and they were, the way they were bringing, they were swaying and they were rocking and it wasn't dancing. It was a beautiful movement that really expressed the depth of their love at at Hmm. being able to offer something to the Lord you know, uh, something of the bounty that he provided for them. And you just saw that. I mean, you got it. When you saw it, you got it. And I remember yeah. sitting there next to Father thinking, wow, this is incredibly beautiful. And also thinking, wow, this is not American. <laughs> you yeah, know? I mean, think, I because mean, sometimes I think we try to take those things, we try to Americanize them. It doesn't work mm. because the, that's not who, that's not us. That's not our experience. We don't live from the depth. I mean, there were people that literally walked Two hours to get to church. Church started mass started sure. at eight. Some people left at six a.m. to get there. You know, for, for two and a half hours, and they and they walk another two hours back, and they didn't even think anything of it. And look at us. You know, um, you know, we get to church late. Well, you know, we got cars and parking lots and stuff like that. We just we kind of take it for granted, and, and that's oh, why man. I think it's important that. You know, if we do get an opportunity to travel, just don't find the English speaker. Just try to find, uh, you know, a culture diverse parish and, and enter into that experience. Mix it up.
1: Deacon, I wanted to change gears a little bit because, and maybe on this kind of world traveling tip, um, you know, the idea that you've had an opportunity to serve in your ministry as a preacher, as obviously as a deacon and husband, father, etc., all the things that you are, but um, the, de- the, the ministry... The, the diaconate itself, right, um, that ministry of deacon, the spirituality of the deacon, right, I'm wondering specifically as you think about this backdrop of all the things that we've been going through as a country, right, the kind of polarization, division, a lot of these deviations and deformities that have now entered into popular culture and are so loud, they're so dominant, that it's really hard to, to, to sort of, um, you know, avoid but I'm thinking of the spirituality and mission of the deacon. How, how is that maybe more pressing now in this country than it has been before? If, if you see it that way, maybe you don't, but how do you view that ministry of the deacon with respect to this backdrop that we've described about what's going on in the country?
0: Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. I think um, deacons have uh, an essential role. To play. In fact, I, I spend quite a bit of time talking about it in, in my uh, book. I have a book coming out. Um, I think I have some advanced copies. Hold on a second. Sure. Yep, I have an advanced copy of it uh, uh, right here. As you can see, our of uh, service. Our, our life of service. Oh, boy, yeah. Our life of service, the, the handbook uh, for Catholic deacons. And this is the advanced copy because the, the regular copy has the imprimatur and all that stuff in it. But no, I, I talk specifically in there about how uh, deacons can can play an essential role. Um, you know, I think part of the because remember if you look a little bit back at the history of the diaconate, the, 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 there were there were always deacons in the church, right? Since so Acts chapter six, and as during the tenth century. That there was this transition because they felt deacons were too powerful. There were archdeacons, you know, right. at the time, and uh, so they felt it, sometimes the priest had to go through the deacon or the archdeacon to get to the bishop. And so there was this shift where the diaconate went from a permanent order to a transitional order. So notice it never fell away. You know, mm. there were always deacons there, and they saw the deacon as important and essential in the life of the church. And it was actually um, at the Council of Trent that met from 1545 to 1563 that called for the restoration of the diaconate as a permanent order all the way. Cause people think Vatican II, which, which actually did it, but it was actually all the way back in Trent. 400 years
1: before. Yeah. yeah.
0: It didn't happen because they also uh, wanted to start a seminary system and guess which one out the seminary system. So what's the Vatican II that the diaconate was restored. But I think today uh, when I talked about, you know, how, um, we always are are coming from behind, you know. We're we're we're, we're always uh, reactive. I think the deacons can be the one to leave that proactive measure and changing the way people look at the church, the way we approach the church, um, bringing people together in community. Like for example, uh, Deacon Charlie. One of the things that I think that needs to happen now on this other side of COVID is a Eucharistic Renaissance. What what do I Amen. mean? You know, the the first time that anyone denied that Jesus was present, body soul, in the uh, divinity Eucharist, was in the 11th century, Berengarius of Tours. That's right. And when he had to sign his Oath of Fidelity, which actually put Paul VI, has in his document Mysterium Fidei, the mystery of faith, he actually has that Oath of Faith that Berengarius signed in that document. It's absolutely beautiful. But what that did, you know, uh, it, it, it caused this Eucharistic Renaissance, uh, adoration, Eucharistic processions; the, the, those started to become into more and more favor, and I think that's exactly what we need now. um We before COVID, sixty-nine percent of Catholics didn't believe Jesus was present in the Eucharist, and then for a year and a half, they didn't. A lot of people didn't go to church, you know, because the you know the dispensation didn't say you, you you had to watch it streaming. It is it, it said you didn't have to do anything. So oh, now. And I know the bishops didn't do this, that this wasn't their intention, but I've talked to a number of people who felt, I don't understand. When I was growing up, I heard that Mass was the most important, never miss Mass, you know, and for a year and a half, basically, they're saying it's not that, I mean, not that important. Again, that's not the intention of the bishops. That's just the way some people felt during that this past year and a half. So I think we need is this. This Eucharistic renaissance, this revival in the church to bring us back to life again. And what does Jesus say? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And I think the deacons can be the leaders in this. Why? Priests are still busy. They're worried about now, you know, things are up again. RCIA class is starting. Youth group is starting. All this stuff. They all, you know, they have all this stuff. But the deacons can be the one. You know, if your parents don't have Eucharistic adoration, how about the deacon once a week? Expose the blessed sacrament for several hours you know, um, and does benediction at the end. You use the deacon, you know, and and utilize him to help bring people together. Now, in our diocese, we still have restrictions. We can't go to the hospitals or the prisons and stuff and, you know, until the COVID numbers come down some more. So only the priest can go now, only the limited number of contacts. When that opens up again, I think the deacons can be the one, for example, it's about bringing people together in the parish from diverse communities. Well, the deacon lead that. The priest doesn't need to lead that. I mean, he's the pastor if he wants to, of course. But if he doesn't have time because he's busy, have the deacon do it. Deacon, go and meet with the deacon from the other parish. You know, the, the, the Italian deacon meets with the black deacon or the Vietnamese deacon or the Latino deacon. And they get to go, hey, guys, look, let's be the ones to spearhead this thing. You know, let's let's really work to bring—let's show people that that we can come together as a people of faith and we can lead this. Matt, I mean, what? That would yeah. be awesome. That would be awesome. And I think it would also utilize the gifts of the, the deacon as servants, because we're ordained to be uh, servants. Um, but it's it's taking the service ministry of Christ and in a um, in, in, in a permanent way, um, making that service ministry of life come alive, witnessing to the power of Christ in the world. And again, the deacons, even when the Pope—you know, I, I deacon twice at the Vatican, once for Pope Francis—a deacon reads the gospel— Oh, wow. Even when the Pope says Mass, a deacon reads the Gospel. So he's the the evangelizer. He's the one that um, uh, shares in the bishop's ministry of evangelization. Now, notice this. I I point this out in the book. When the deacon is ordained, he's given a book of the Gospels, right? And you know, preach what you believe, teach what you read, and practice what you teach. And when the bishop is ordained, the book of the Gospels is held up over his head by two deacons. So the word, the gospels are open, the book of the gospel open above his head. Is that see the connection between the bishop and the deacon, the gospel? Come on. See, I I think there's tremendous opportunity here for for deacons to help bring again, it has to be grassroots. It can't be from the top down. Has to be this grassroots movement. And I think the deacons could be the leaders in that.
1: And it would be a recovery, to your point, of things that have happened in the past. Because, you know, I have a, a deacon brother of mine who jokes all the time about, you know, back when there were archdeacons and all that stuff. He says, see, that's what we need. We need Vatican III, the rise of the deacons. That's what he always says. He's like, we'll get the leather jackets. You know what I mean? It'll be great. But but the reality of it is, is that some of this would be a recovery of things in the past where the deaconate was, um, you know, much more clearly sort of understood as this kind of like— you know, heraldic presence of the bishop and administrative presence of the bishop and really being out into the world and taking advantage of the fact that we've got a foot in the world and a foot in the church. And now, I don't know how it is in in your diocese, Deacon, but, you know, one of the things that I I begrudge silently, and you can never begrudge someone's vocation or when God calls them, but it seems to me that maybe we've been good um, at silencing God's invitation to the diaconate at younger ages. And it seems like, at least in my diocese, it, it turns out mostly men who are you know, retired or, or older seek the diaconate. But the reality of it is, is that that is not because of any canonical stricture or or requirement. It just kind of happens to be the way that it is, maybe just here in this diocese. But I think we have to make sure that, that men at, at all ages, right, obviously north of 35 by ordination, but are, are hearing that call for the permanent diaconate and acting on it because we need men who are in business and in their careers and in the full of their family years and all this stuff to bring that ministry and that witness to the world. Um, and, and, and like, I think that would make us better able to carry out and be the front line of what you just described.
0: Oh, Deacon Charles, you nailed it, man. You, you hit the nail right on the head. And let me tell you how important uh, what you just said is. When I was accepted into the diaconate program here in the Archdiocese of Portland, I was 30 years old. Now, now you said well, wait, wait a right? minute, 30. Now, remember, canon law says you have to be 35. The minimum age for ordination to the permanent jacket is 35 at ordination.
1: At ordination. Now, That's when right. I
0: was 30, I did not meet any of the requirements. I was not married long enough. I was, I mean, I, 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 just, I hardly met any of the requirements at all. But um, so I, I was accepted at 30, but there was no class that you had to wait for the next cohort. So I was 31. It takes five years, including a master's degree in theology in our diocese. And I was ordained at just past my 35th birthday. So I was 30, I was the youngest deacon ever ordained in the history of the diocese. And wow. when when we're getting close to ordination, the diaconate board raised some red flags because we at the time we had a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and my wife was pregnant with the twins. And I'm about to be ordained a deacon. So they were like we've never been through this before this is I new it, what about their family life how is this going to you know and so we had to have a special meeting with the archbishop before ordination me and my wife and someone from the diaconate board and they, and they and they brought it all wow. up and wow. and the archbishop said you know um the minimum age is 35 and i'm looking at everything in your file i mean you're you're ready <laughs> um and, and we and I, and I think that you guys can be a powerful witness to family life especially being an inspiration to younger families so i'm going to so i'm going to ordain you <laughs> okay so i mean so it was you know thanks it was a god. kind of a formality but so um thanks be to god and now they they look at younger men with on a case by case basis first it was something they never looked at and now they look at it a case by case basis because you're right um, you know, we, I think if we had younger men, and that's also a point I make in the book too, if we had younger men and have, um, bishops consider that as part of the formation process, you know, and, and a lot of it depends on the wife. I mean, my wife, I mean, cause I was a, a Benedictine in my twenties. So my, my wife knew about my monastic background, um, and knew that faith was, was important. I, I still felt called to serve. Somehow that, that this diaconate was was it. I think it was the answer to God's call in my life, and she understood that. So she was supported from day one. And quite frankly, if it wasn't for her love and support, I could not be exercising the diaconate ministry the way I am right now. It, that this doesn't happen without her love and support. Um, so if you are younger, it's, now don't try and talk your wife into it. I mean, she needs to understand. Wait a minute, wh- wh- what does this mean for me? I don't want to be home with the kids by myself. You know, so what we did was we got creative. You know, we went to the pastor and said, "Look, my wife said I'm comfortable with this, with him being away from this family for this many hours, because I'm not going to stay with a four-year-old and two-year-old and newborn twins by myself. So I'm comfortable with this many hours a week, where he's away doing things at the parish." And father said, "Fine." I said, "Fine," and it was never a problem because I honored my wife's uh, uh, wishes to to really balance that family and I was working full-time and, and parish. Uh, so it wasn't easy, but it's, it's definitely possible because all things are possible with God.
1: Amen. Well, thank God that that bishop said yes and and ordained you. Look at all the—I mean, look at the fruit that your ministry has created. I mean, are you kidding me? That's amazing. That's uh, Were, were you—and I knew that about your Benedictine background. Obviously, a little bit of research before i had you on the show i don't know if you know my brother my my only brother i have one brother is a benedictine priest he's a monk not too far from where i am he was actually ordained two weeks after i was ordained to the diaconate wow. but your 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 monastic call i guess maybe even first like your family background right and how you we did you grow up in a very uh, you know religious household very catholic household what, what was that like
0: Well, we're we're first of all I was born in Barbados, so me we're first generation to come to the U.S. My mom was the first Catholic ever in our family. She was a Methodist, and she became Catholic when she was a teenager, and so I am the oldest child of her uh, marriage with my dad, and so I am the first. Baptized Catholic because my mom Catholic. didn't have to be wow. baptized.
1: Now in Barbados, is there uh, another tradition that predominates? No, Anglican because uh, like, remember
0: Barbados Anglican. was a British colony forever. During especially right. during the slave trade. Oh yeah, yeah. heavily British because the, the 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 big um, crop there wasn't cotton like in the U.S. It was sugarcane and it's sugar from cane. that sugarcane and, and now they make and rum. That was the big export. Absolutely. So they would harvest the sugar cane, make the rum, and then export it to different parts of the world. And I've got so, family
1: from Antigua and they have a similar kind of background. And just so you know, a little little button on your story, I actually spent my formative years in the Caribbean as well. I lived in St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands.
0: Oh, fantastic. So we got a little more <laughs> okay. connection. Yeah, yeah. So my uh my my dad had was not a person of faith at all. Not mm. baptized, never went to church. Um, but he but he had no problem allowing my mom to raise us as Catholic. So when we immigrated to the US. My mom, but I remember, I remember my mom kneeling us down, you know, me and my brother who was born in Barbados, my other brother who was born here in the U.S., and, and teaching us our prayers, right? Our Father, and, you know, we repeat, they're our Father, Hail Mary, Glory be to the Father, Angel of God. You know, she kneeled all of us down and, and learned our prayers, taking us to Mass. Now, she noticed that I wasn't like the other kids when I went to Mass, And I remember even at nine years old, I remember my mom would have me on the end of the pew by the aisle. She would stand next to me and then my brothers and my sister on the other side, because they were like normal kids, like bumping each other and throwing Cheerios and stuff. But I was laser focused on what was going on at the altar. And my mom Hmm. saw that. So she created that separation so I could stay focused. And I remember at nine years old thinking, there's something really cool going on up there. I don't totally understand what it is. But I like it. (laughs) And when I started serving mass, oh, oh, man! I I mean, that same joy and that same, I mean, my heart would just start racing for love of just being on the altar. And I still feel that to this day. That Amen. same childlike enthusiasm for serving at the altar. And I took it serious, boy. Man, people would tell my mom, boy, your son never smiles up there, but he's serious. Oh, yeah. yeah. I took it very seriously. So I thought I might have a calling to the priest. Because I remember one time specifically, it was my turn to ring the bells. I had my hand on the bells. And I still remember Father O'Connor with the Irish brogue was, was about to elevate the Eucharist. I was going to ring the bells. I remember thinking to myself clearly, I could totally see myself doing that. Wow. And I end up going to St. Benedict's Preparatory School in Newark, run by Benedictine Monks, and they had a come and see program. So I did the come and see program all four years of high school. And by by the time I was a senior, I was living in and out of the monastery about two weeks every other month. Um, Because back then, before the uh, abuse stuff, you could do that. I actually lived in a novitiate on the fourth floor. And so um, I went to college. I became the first person in my family ever to go to college. I had an academic scholarship at the University of Notre Dame. Went there for four years, worked for a year, and then joined the monastery. And I thought, this is it, you know. i home. This is it. And uh, I was there for a couple of years, and then uh, my mom, got my parents got divorced. My mom got sick and almost died, and so the abbot gave me three months out of the monastery to take care of my mom. And my sister was still in high school, and. You know, so I had to make sure the bills were paid and she got to school and eight and all that sure. stuff. And uh, it was when I was out of the monastery, I went to a wedding and met my wife at the wedding. So whoops, <laughs> that kind of complicated things. But but I often would think about, well, why did God give me this desire since I was nine years old? I loved being in the monastery. Why take me out? And, and now I'm married, you know, and, and I was thinking God has an amazing sense of humor, and a sense of vision. So I'm thinking, what's going on here? And God's thinking, see, you don't know this right now, but I'm preparing you for something. You don't know this right now, but 30 years from now, you're gonna be serving me as a deacon. And you're gonna need this experience of your love for prayer, your love for liturgy, your love for silence, your love for praying the office, your love for devotions, that were all fostered in monastic life, I'm laying a foundation for you so that when you do what I called you to do, you will have a solid foundation which to draw from. And I tell you, Deacon Charlie, I draw from that foundation every single day.
1: Wow. It's amazing, the idea of the synchronicity of God and His purview is ultimately infinite and he can see all of these things and that we oftentimes can, right? We're dead set on we need to do X, Y, Z, which is also illustrates the wisdom of the church that the church confirms things for us, right? In other words, we can really want, the example I give all the time to people are like, look, you can want to marry the girl as much as you think you do. If she doesn't want to marry you, you ain't getting married. Simple as that, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, the, the and the church works the same way. It's like, I have a vocation. I'm going to do this. I want to be a Benedictine, but God, and you can still obviously carry out the Benedictine spirituality, but God has a plan and he allows you all these different things because to your point, they can become fodder and 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 something to draw from in this great foundation and deacon one other thing they can inspire other monastic calls and other diaconal and priestly calls even if you don't chase that particular path right so that's the part we don't know you
0: know deacon charlie you oh you are so right and i know of two instances specifically where men have become priests because of my diaconal ministry one was uh, i was in australia and i was on a two-week speaking tour and right at the end of the two weeks there was a guy who had a serious girlfriend she was beautiful he introduced her to me she was gorgeous and but he also had this deep longing for the priest he was kind of like discerning with the you know mm-hmm. and, and with this religious order but he didn't, they didn't know what to do so he heard my story during the tour and he said please if you please have if you make some time I, I really 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 need to talk to you and so we sat down for several hours he let me know um a, a couple months later that he decided to go to the priesthood broke wow. the girl's heart but now she sure. they're actually they're actually friends and now she's um married now and has her own kids and stuff and and but now he's ordained and serving in a religious religious community and uh he's he's happy as as can be and just recently another young man who i who i had the honor and privilege of serving as deacon for told me that you know uh, during our youth group, you know, they showed one of your videos and stuff. And I was like, yeah, whatever, youth group, whatever. And then I saw you, and I never heard anybody talk about the faith with such passion and conviction. And it, it caused me to think maybe there's something here, you know. And the more I I prayed about, it, the more I engaged, my heart was just drawn to the priesthood. And when I saw how you made that commitment. You know how God, I said, maybe God could do the same thing for me. And he's a priest now. And I just like, well, I was almost tearing up, you know, because I, I mean, I didn't ask them. I mean, it, you know, I, I, I wasn't trying, but it was just from living the diaculate, the way the church asks me to live it, you know, um, and, and that, that, that can be a witness in the lives of other people. And that's how I think we can lead. A
1: hundred percent. And by the way, not that you need it from me, but just, a, you know, big ups to your mom, too, for what you were talking about earlier, that she saw that in you, that desire, that attention, that focus, that curiosity, whatever it was. And she encouraged and she kind of fomented that. Right. Going back to the point we talked about earlier, God's always calling. God's always calling. But we have so many distractions, so many, so much noise. So many things, which is another thing we can take a page out of the monastic handbook for, right? It's like cultivating silence so we can hear, you know, God calling. But your mom, just that little brief story you told, helped to make it possible for you to hear what that voice actually was. And so much of it doesn't happen today because of all this ton of distraction and noise. We need people to step in and go, wait, you know, take a moment, step to the side. Let me create this space for you so you can hear this. For yes, for our kids, but for other people as well. That in itself is a ministry.
0: Oh, there's no question about it. And you know, Saint Benedict says in his first line of of the rule, listen my sons to the master's precepts and incline the ear of your heart. See the heart Leb in Hebrew the heart is not just an organ that pumps blood through the body. For the Hebrews, the, the heart was the seat of the will. The heart was the place where your desire for God lives in you. And you can only hear that voice in silence. That's why Psalm 46, verse 11 says, Be still and know that Mother I am God. In fact, God. the word there in Hebrew for know is yada, And yawda is knowledge that is gained by experience. So you can translate that, be still and experience God wow. in the silence. In the quiet, and I would recommend Carlos Saras' book, "The Power of Silence." I'm reading. Man, it. oh, right now, what an awesome book! And it's very just, Carthusian in its approach. Um, I just quoted
1: are- it. I quoted it on the last show with uh, with my last guest because it was just so good. I have it here somewhere, but uh, not in front of me. But yeah, you're like nailing every part of it, and 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 one step maybe even further, which we you know from a kind of contemporary understanding, maybe we don't fully capture, but the idea that God's voice, yes, of course, is can be heard in the silence and in solitude, but in a more transcendent way, God's voice is the silence, right? This kind of idea of like, that is, you know, what his voice sounds like is when it's just the present moment and no distraction and, and solitude with him, right? That's like, oh, mind-blowing.
0: You know, that's a great point. And in the second Vatican Council document on the liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, it talks about active participation, which everybody made such a big deal about. You know, we have to be actively sure. participating. But if you yep. look at it in Latin, um, the, the word they use, there's no, theres two words in Latin for active. One is activa. That's where we get the word active from. But but that means active engagement. You know, like, for example, if you are watching a movie and you are actively participating, you'd be in the movie. But the word they use is, is actuositatem. Actuosa, Actuosa is a deeper, richer inner participation. So, for example, I remember watching The Passion of the Christ for the first time. And oh, it yeah. got to the scene where Jesus was carrying the cross and John was trying to get the Blessed Mother as close to Jesus as possible. And he told, and she was at the end of a portico. And John says, wait here, because he was trying to find his way through the crowd. And meanwhile, the Blessed Mother's standing there. And then at the other end of the portico, you see, you hear the, the whip and you hear the the soldiers, and then you see Jesus fall, and Mary sees that, and she starts to run toward him. Then it had a flashback of her of Jesus falling down the steps. She dropped the clothes, oh, and she yeah. was running to, and it kept flashing back and forth. And I started crying because me as a too. parent, me too, you can totally yeah. get that. But even 100%. though it wasn't real, it was just a movie. Man, you were participating. It's that kind of participation. And that's why St. John Paul too said that one of the most active ways we can be present at mass is in silence. Mm. And we become uncomfortable with silence at mass. Let's be real yes, here. We have. I mean, think yes, about we it. Have. You know, uh, uh, the first reading, word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Music starts off responsorial sort of song. Responsorial Psalm is over. Reading from the book of uh, the uh, first letter of Paul to Timothy. Ah, holy! Whoa, whoa. Boom. Stop. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The Lord is speaking to us in His Word. Can we take five seconds to allow that Word to, to penetrate our hearts before we move on to the next thing? You know, even, even when I started with a priest, he said, let us call to mind our sins. And I actually wait four or five seconds to have the people do because he says nudge me, your part. I'm like, I know. I'm actually giving the people time to do what you just asked <laughs> the, them to do, the you know. And even at communion time, there's a communion. Oh, song. Oh, don't get me started there's on that. There's a prayer one. after communion song. There's a reflection song after the communion song after the prayer. Come on, we're so afraid of silence that every minute has to be filled with something, and and I think or
1: worse. Or worse, deacon, and the re- after uh, the reflection being used for like announcements or something. It's like oh, yeah, that's the moment where you know you you just consume the body of our Lord. You know, it's like uh, I heard in a homily once a priest say that imagine this time after reception of the Eucharist as like you know Saint John when he puts his head on our Lord's chest and can hear his kind of heartbeat. Right, it's like imagine that moment of intimacy. Cultivate that. But it's hard to do that when you're hearing about like, you know, they're, they're selling, uh, you know, pupusas after mass or something. You
0: yeah. know what I mean? It's yeah. like you just can't get there. At least I can. That's so true. That's so true.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. and, that's, and, and, um, and, and I, uh, I mean, I, I, that I, may God. be
0: someone's only adoration time for the whole week is that silence after receiving communion. mm
1: that's true. That's very true. Deacon, as, as I thought, you know, an hour will go, goes by very quickly with you. So um, we're going to have to have you back, God willing, soon. But um, before we go to our final segment here called Wait What, I wanted to just make sure that you had an opportunity to share with folks. You got so many things going on. You're obviously, you're, you know, world traveler and author and speaker. You've got a bunch of shows on EWTN and all that stuff. But what should people be paying attention to right now? and where can they find out like kind of what you're up to and follow you in the best way
0: yeah just deaconherald.com you know um because i'm i'm making a very deliberate shift i think for me covid was a time it was a spiritual stop sign you know i was traveling two hundred fifty thousand miles a year all over the world and during covid obviously i haven't been, hardly been going anywhere i went for two hundred fifty thousand. i think i did five thousand miles last year hardly any this year uh well until the fall then things start picking up but I think God really showed me, like, I need you to slow down. I need you to start refocusing. So the best thing to do is, is go to DeaconHerald.com. I have a pilgrimage ministry, which I'm doing to be more actively engaged in. All my social media is there. I have 950 YouTube videos. Uh, I'm on uh, you know Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn. and Access to um, articles that I've written, radio interviews, all that stuff is, is free on the website under the media section. Um, even promos, I was in the movie, um, power in my hands about the rosary, you know, so there's information there, just, just the easiest place to go, DeaconHerald.com. Very cool.
1: Yeah. Look, I'm happy to, even though I'm, you know, I guess somewhat unhappy that maybe somebody in some far-flung place isn't going to get the benefit of your presence in the flesh. I'm very happy that you can devote time, more time for media because, you know, you can reach a lot of souls in a lot of different ways, um, with your film and video and, and audio work. So... Uh, I'm definitely a big believer in that. So, okay, cool. So, ready to play Wait What, Deacon? Sure. All right, here we go. Three questions. All right. And I'll repeat them if 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 I need to, because sometimes they have a, a, a potential uh, over-complexity, which I'm trying to minimize. Okay, question number one. A rupture in the space-time continuum has allowed for a meeting between yourself, Deacon, St. Bede the Venerable, St. Francis of Rome, and Dorothy Day, all Benedictines. But... During this meeting, you're only able to ask your guests one question, which they will all answer from their very pers- various perspectives about the Benedictine order and spirituality. What is your one question that you ask them?
0: Wow. <laughs> Want me to read it again. No, no, no. I've got okay. it. I've got it. Um, but I would ask one question to all three.
1: To all three, you get to ask St. Bede, St. Francis of Rome, and Dorothy Day the same question. All three of them about the Benedictine spirituality, the Benedictine tradition, St. Benedict, whatever you want. But you can only ask them one question uh, in this chance space-time continuum meeting
0: that you happen to have. Wow. I guess I guess I would ask, um, you know, because they're I'm still sure they're all in heaven. So what? So uh, th- this balance of of uh, or at labora. Right, pray and work. Um, you know how how have you found that in, in, in the in, uh, lived out in fulfillment of your life in heaven? You know, mm. you know, because that, that's where I mean, because I, you're right. I'm an I'm an oblate, a Benedictine oblate. So I live a Benedictine spirituality in my life every day. I read from the Rule of Saint Benedict every day. So I'm like, how how does that aura at Labora play out in the eternity in heaven?
1: That's a good one. You're going to get a lot, I could just imagine uh, the kind of answers you would get from those three characters. And yes, even though Dorothy Day, I don't know if she's, is she a venerable yet? I, oh, the no, I two think are she's it, so. on her way, yeah. She's on her way. So yeah, we probably have a good perspective on that. Okay. Very good. Question number two. This one's fun. Which of the following is false about your home state of New Jersey? False about New Jersey. Number one, during the Revolutionary War, more battles were fought in New Jersey than any other state. Number two, the first collegiate basketball game ever was played at Princeton in 1869. Or number three, square dancing is New Jersey's state dance. Which of those is false about New Jersey? Wow,
0: I have to say three.
1: Okay. And I have to say, sadly, you are incorrect. Oh, okay. Square, square dancing is New Jersey's state dance. What? The,
0: yes, I don't square know. I verified this. That far north, it, I wouldn't. Have, I wouldn't have pegged that at all.
1: I will send you the link myself, wow. that's why, you know, we go through extensive research on this Deacon to make sure we get it right. <laughs> the correct the correct answer is number two, the first collegiate basketball uh, game was not played at Princeton, but in fact, the first collegiate football game was, uh, So, but not basketball. Okay. So there you go. All right, final question. This is a media related question. Here you go. You've booked an enormous gig. You're going to be given the microphone for exactly five minutes. During the opening ceremony of the 2024 Olympic Games, your message is going to be simultaneously broadcast throughout the world, translated into dozens of languages. But the organizers, however, have specified that for for reasons of religious neutrality, you must not speak about any specifically Christian subject. Two-parter, do you take the gig and what's your talk about?
0: Oh, yeah, I'll take the gig. And I'll talk about the natural moral law, because actually that actually happened to me in Singapore. Uh, I got really? asked to speak in an event where I could not specifically talk about Jesus. Um, it was about marriage. And so I, I drew for the natural moral law, and it was very, very well received.
1: Wow. There you go. All right. Awesome. I agree with you. I would take the gig as well, and we'll figure out what we talk about, but that's yeah. a big stage, <laughs> yeah. and we can we that's can right. use it for good. God can figure it out. Awesome. Well, Deacon Harold, real privilege to have you on the show. God bless you and prosper all of your many ministries. We'll encourage everyone to follow your work at DeaconHerald.com. And for everybody else listening to this show, please remember to subscribe, tell your friends and family about the show, help it grow. God bless you all, and we'll see you again next time on another episode of Living the Call. If you enjoyed this episode of Living the Call, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell someone you love about the show and spread the word. Living the Call is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about the organization behind the show by searching for the Catholic Association of Latino Leaders on any social platform or by going directly to call-usa.org. That's C-A-L-L-U-S-A dot O-R-G. Living the Call is produced by Manu Kasten and Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Networks. God bless you, and thank you for listening.